Yeah, I'm not. I decided after two days of not wearing a tie that I'm not going to conform to the pattern of this camp. <laughs> Go back to my wheelhouse. So Haley began her talk earlier by uh, thanking you for having us. Uh, this is perfunctory thing that speakers are supposed to do. We're supposed to thank you. But both of us really mean this. Um, it has been a, a really refreshing time for us to be here with you. Um, it's been fun. It's been just a delight to hear many of your stories and to get to know you a little bit. Uh, personally, for me, I have been so impressed with um, the clarity and the articulacy of Haley's presentations. In each time that she's talked, I've learned something new that will change the way that I read scripture. So Haley, thank you for putting so much work into it. And also, just for being such a good teacher. So I couldn't be more grateful to be doing ministry alongside her at Whitworth. Um, in, in this last talk, I want to make a few points and then draw an analogy. The, the final talk is, the subject of this talk is pastoral ethos, and by that, I just mean the way that our presence as human beings influences our communication of the Christian faith. The most helpful book uh, that I have read on this is not a book about rhetoric or ministry or anything like that. It's Karl Barth's book, Evangelical Theology. Um, whatever you think about Bart's thought, maybe by the end of this week, you're like, I've had enough of Karl Bart for the rest of my life. Um, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, even if that's your view, I would still strongly encourage you to get his book, Evangelical Theology. Um, in its own small way, that book as, is as important, or certainly has been as important for me personally as his other great and far more famous works, The Church Dogmatics and The Romans Commentary. Um, a, a Bart scholar would hear me say that and think that that's a ridiculous claim. Um, but I, I, what I mean is that obviously its contribution to our understanding of the Christian message can't um, hold a candle to those other two great books. Nor even do I think that its um, description of wh what Christian theology actually is, I mean, it's all already there in the church dogmatics. What's remarkable about this book is Barth's analysis of who theologians and pastors are. When it was published in 1963, Bart had been at the center of the academic theological world for decades. And in evangelical theology, he's stepping back for a moment, and he's reflecting one last time on what it means to be engaged in theological ministry. And fascinatingly, at least to me, his reflections are as much a work of spiritual theology as they are of doctrinal reflection. 
The book is concerned with the phrase that I've been using throughout um, these talks. It's his phrase, it's not mine. Theological existence. The lives of theologians and pastors themselves. It's more, I think, significant because of his descriptions of the lives of pastors than it is any sort of new theological idea you might encounter. And for me personally, the most arresting theme of the book, and the one that has seized my attention over the last few years, is his penetrating diagnosis of a spiritual disease that threatens every Christian leader. Alongside the bright and joyful major chord of Barth's reflections on what he calls the happy science of Christian theology, a darker and more ominous minor chord begins to emerge. If the good news is that God sometimes mercifully allows our ministries to become useful, the bad news is that theological leaders can become sick unto death, and all of our exertions can add up to nothing. Instead of bearing witness to the light of life, instead of mirroring the truth in our own imperfect ways, our very existence, who we are as human beings, can become darkness. And all of our theological and ministerial huffing and puffing can turn to poison. And if you ever read this book, or if you have read this book, you will know that this rhetoric that I'm using is not inflated compared to the rhetoric that Bart himself uses in the book. This book contains something like an MRI of a sick Christian leader and a diagnosis that the disease is both contagious and terminal. Theological existence animated by the fresh air of God's spirit is a life of freedom. And Bart gives us a connoisseur's appreciation of the distinctive pleasures of the vocation of theological ministry. Um, some of his best quotes, I'm sure many of you have read them on the internet. Uh, the theologian who labors without joy is not a theologian at all. Unless you can laugh at yourself, Karl Barth says. Uh, like the angels laugh at Karl Barth every time he brings out some new volume of the church dogmatics, then you don't understand the joys and the freedom and the life-giving um, atmosphere that can characterize our ministries. But alongside all of that, and just as clearly, Bart warns us again and again that our work can go horribly wrong. Good theological work, he writes, is work that is, quote, pleasing to God and helpful to people. But bad theology, theology disconnected from the freshly flowing air of the Spirit of God, is a plague. 
It is, he says, quote, one of the most terrible of all terrible occurrences that occur on earth. As you make your way through the book, it does not take you long to figure out that Karl Barth is worried about us. Like a father fretting over his children, he knows how easy it is for us to veer off track and to waste our lives and ministries and in the process to do profound harm. And he's trying as hard as he possibly can to help us avoid that fate. Now, it will not surprise you if you've been listening to my talks to learn that Bart's vision of healthy Christian ministry is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. God's self-emptying love in Christ is the model of all theological work and all pastoral ministry. Here's how he puts it. Quote, if the object of theological knowledge is Jesus Christ and in him perfect love, then love alone can be the dominant and formative prototype and principle of all Christian theology, unquote. God's love in Christ is, he says, and I'll repeat it again, the prototype and the principle, the sort of animating spirit of all good theological work. The problem, though, is that ministry that corresponds to this prototype, ministry that actually becomes an act of self-emptying love and service, is unusual just because it's so hard to do. Who among us is ready to say, that his or her ministry meets that standard. And while we fall short of this ideal for all sorts of reasons, each in our own ways, I'd like to draw your attention to what Bart thinks is perhaps the most insidious vice that works its way into our lives. It's a problem that he addresses throughout the book and one that he regards as a menacing threat to Christian ministry. It's an illness that presents itself as, among other things, an excessive concern for our reputations, a morbid craving for the praise of the people that listen to us talk. A self-importance, these are, these are all his descriptions, a self-importance combined with insecurity. Such an observant psychological observation that self-importance and insecurity so often go together. A relentless desire to outdo our colleagues and to broadcast our own accomplishments. An adolescent instinct always to be ranking and comparing ourselves with other preachers and teachers and pastors and ministers. And a loveless envy when they succeed. A gloomy anxiety, he says, takes place in us when it comes to the way that we think about our legacies about how people are going to remember us when we're dead. 
The word that Bart uses to describe this broad catalog of symptoms is vanity. To put it bluntly, Karl Barth thinks that a Christian leader is an embodied contradiction of the gospel and the very antithesis of Jesus Christ if that leader is vain. And he does not care how obvious that is. He knows that vanity disables us, and because of that, he is sounding the alarm. And we would do well not to avoid his critique by dismissing it as moralistic or judgmental or whatever. It would not be too far off, I think, to say that Bart's examination of this theme in evangelical theology is something like a gloss on Jesus' claim that you cannot simultaneously seek praise from God and from people. You can seek one or the other, but not both at the same time. And it is super important to see that Bart is not taking cheap shots at pastors or at theologians. Yes, he's giving us strong medicine, but he's giving it to us because he thinks that instead of becoming witnesses to the truth, vanity... And it usually expresses itself in covert forms, but vanity turns us into the kinds of people who obscure the truth. People whose very lives make the gospel less rather than more plausible. Now, obviously, we can't make the gospel any less true than it is. But Bart understands the role that our existence plays in both the perception and the concealment of the truth. He writes, quote, the community does not speak with words alone. It speaks by the very fact of its existence in the world, unquote. There's what we say, and then there's who we are. And who we are says something. I realize that this is not everyone's problem. Um, Many, perhaps even most of you, don't need to hear this. Maybe you struggle with other vices. And part of the reason that this week has been so refreshing for us, for me, has just been that the spirit of this conference has been mercifully free of all of this. Um, And it just... It's life-giving to be here among you. But anyone who has read the gospel knows that Jesus goes out of his way to address this problem. Speaking specifically about theological leaders, he says, quote, everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats. They love to be greeted with respect and to be called teacher. But the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus pretty obviously thinks that a lot of us do need to hear this message. 
In Luke 14, he tells his disciples that following him requires them to give up their possessions. And for many of us, the possession that we covet most, the thing that we cling to like greedy misers, is our reputation. Maybe you're not convinced. Don't other people's opinions of us matter? Shouldn't we pay attention to what people think of us? Isn't that part of what it means to be a healthy and a mature person? Those are very good questions, and they have very simple answers. Of course, other people's perceptions of us matter. And we should try, to the extent that we can, to be aware of them. And of course, we need people to encourage us. Affirmation gives us strength to keep going in our ministries, especially when it comes from people that we respect and admire. And we also need constructive criticism. Since all of us are, in Augustine's phrase, opaque to ourselves, since we don't see ourselves clearly, all of us need other people to correct us. Of course, all of that's true. But here's the thing, everybody already knows all of that, and God did not become human to tell us stuff that everybody already knows. In passages like the one above, Jesus is diagnosing something else, something deeper, a cycle where we move beyond a healthy concern for our reputation and instead become slaves to our reputation, where we're always putting ourselves on display, where we allow our reputation to determine the people and the things that we pay attention to, to direct our decisions, to guide how we move through our days, even to determine for us who we decide to be friends with. And it's that that Jesus and Karl Barth are warning us against. And they're doing that because they know that becoming addicted to attention and approval diminishes our witness. It makes the gospel less plausible to the people who hear us talk about it. I want to illustrate this point with an example in a second, but I want to direct your attention again to the co-star of this series of lectures, along with Karl Barth, Soren Kierkegaard. As Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, like Jesus, like Barth, is not the kind of friend that you would always want to be in your company. <laughs> he is a merciless teaser, Kierkegaard was. This began from the time that he was a very young man. He was once, or young boy rather, he was once at the dinner table 
And someone asked him, uh, if you could be anything, uh, what would you be? And he said, a fork. And they were like, why? And he said, um, so I can stab the food in the middle of the table before y'all get it before me? And they said, well, what if we just get it before you stab it? And he said, I'll stab you too. <laughs> and this is his life. He's continually stabbing people, stabbing the church, etc. He finds the perfect way to express all this stuff that I'm talking about. He says, quote, the essential sermon is one's own existence. Why? Because it is actual existence that preaches. However harrowing the thought may be, your life is your final answer to the question of who you think God is. And as Kierkegaard writes, we cannot expect people to admire the vast palace of our Christian vision if they see us living next door in a barn, unquote. None of this is meant to paralyze us. The God who promises to bear witness to himself through his witnesses is the same God who justifies the ungodly. And we bank on both promises. The point just is that Christian existence is existence that conforms to Christ. And since Christ's life is one extended act of self-giving for others, our lives bear witness to his life to the extent that they follow the same basic pattern. I take this to be one of Haley's primary points in her last talk. Recall again the passage that she pointed us to in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. The basic task of every pastor and teacher is to train people to become more persuasive witnesses to Jesus. But if that's true, then it is also true that every pastor ought to aspire to recede into the background, to be displaced as Jesus Christ makes himself known to people. Last night, someone asked a question about how we can evaluate what's happening in our sermons. And I stand by my answer. I do not think that we are reliable evaluators of the work that God is doing in our midst. But I will say this, I think our ministries are successful and our preaching is successful just to the extent that we as preachers become unnecessary. The attitude that we seek to model is that of John the Baptist towards Jesus. He must become greater, I must become less. 
And in my judgment, that is the basic existential shape of all persuasive Christian witness. And it's also the broad pattern of all authentic Christian ministry. Now, to illustrate this point, and Michael, maybe we could show our slide. I'd like to end with a story. He has a face. It's cut off, but um, you get the idea. This is Andres Iniesta. He plays soccer for Barcelona in Spain and for the Spanish national team. Andres Iniesta is a genius. He is, and this is not an exaggeration, as good at what he does as anyone is good currently alive today at any field of endeavor. He's tiny, he's five feet, seven inches, 140 pounds, with legs so skinny, and you can kind of see, well, you can't see, but they're skinny. <laughs> legs so skinny that every time one of these hulking defenders goes to take the ball from him, you're terrified that they're gonna break his leg. But after the Champions League final in 2009, this is the European the competition, the tournament that has Europe's best soccer teams that all come together and compete against one another. After the final of that league in 2009, Wayne Rooney, who is the most well-known British player other than David Beckham, said after that game that he thought Andres Iniesta was the best player in the world better even than Lionel Messi, who many people is the, the best, think is the best player in soccer history. So the point is that Iniesta is really, really good at what he does. And because of that, he has every reason to be a preening megalomaniac, a narcissist like Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> but he's not. In fact, he is exactly the opposite. He was once in a Barcelona restaurant, and a waitress who thought that he was the busboy ordered him to clear a table full of dirty dishes. And he did. <laughs> in 2010, Spain and Holland met in the World Cup final and played to a scoreless draw. Then, in the 116th minute of extra time, Iniesta drifted wide, received a pass, and with a lunging Dutch defender closing in on him, he rifled the ball past the goalkeeper and into the net. And with that one shot, Iniesta won Spain its first World Cup and sent an entire nation into collective ecstasy. <laughs> no one, and this is also not an exaggeration, no one in sports history has ever been higher than Iniesta was at this moment. He had reached the pinnacle of individual sporting achievement. And then, with more than a billion people watching him, 
And with a significant percentage of those people worshiping him, he ripped off his jersey in celebration and revealed the undershirt that he's wearing here. Denny Arke, siempre con nosotros. Denny Arke, always with us. It's a tribute to a friend of his and a former teammate who died the year before of a sudden heart attack. So think for a second about what you're looking at when you see this image. A man prepares his entire life for this moment. And when it finally arrives, he somehow manages to hold his nerve and seize it. And with the eyes of 15% of the world's population fixed on him, what does he do next? He directs all of the glory and attention away from himself to someone else. He becomes less so that someone else can become greater. He becomes invisible so that someone else can become visible. I do not know a more vivid parable of self-emptying Christian existence than this. In this one gesture, Andres Iniesta showed us what it looks like for someone to disappear in front of a billion people. And in the slightly less stratospheric contexts of our ministries, let us pray that God would give us the grace to do the same. Thank you. That's all I have. We have some time for questions or comments, so feel free to start wherever you like. Okay, Dr. Nida, um, a big question is how do we present Jesus, following Jesus, as to be an attractive path for someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus? Uh, I mean, you're seeing our lives, but we've got to do something verbal. Yeah, um, of course. Um, we unfortunately do have to speak. <laughs> I say unfortunately because I don't know about you, but it feels as if we're drowning in a sewage, a sewer of noise and sound and words um, the technologies that we have developed that order our lives barrage us with language that I don't know about you, but makes me just not want to ever say a single word the rest of my life. I just am so tired of BS, so tired of lies, so tired of propaganda that it's all of, we're reformed. We believe in the power of the word. I'm right there with you theologically. But the word today is diminished. And the question becomes, why would anyone who doesn't know Jesus have any good reason to believe us when we tell them about who he is? I mean, they think of us as just one other option in a sea of competing options. 
why would they think that what we're saying is actually true? Um, there's no guarantee that our speech is going to be able to persuade someone. I think what Haley said earlier today is, is the answer to your question. Um, unless we're willing to begin to suffer for people who don't love Jesus, then our lives are not going to become the kinds of lives that persuade them to believe in Jesus. So, so words are an important part of what we do. All of us are, to some extent, wordsmiths. But I think all of us ought to, ought to keep in mind that, it's, that all of our words are also out there in a sea of words, and the people that hear them are just because they're rational, and to be a rational human being today, you have to be skeptical of what people are saying to you. You have to. So I don't know the answer to your question. I think it probably has something to do with cultivating a relationship in which people know that you're willing to serve them. And then maybe at some point you can say something that would be illuminating. Yeah. So just kind of a, an interesting pickup on this. So I'm thinking, okay, so if he had a shirt that said, you know, Jesus Christ always with us, you know, that sense... There's that, that cynicism about the public expression of our faith in Christ in these days. And, of course, you know, a lot of the athletes, after they win the Super Bowl, they say, all glory to God. So they're, they're, and how is that different? And, and the reaction, I think, that people get, they're, they're sick of that. You know, they don't like to hear that. And, and so, you know, how do, we, how do we disappear in a way that doesn't feel like we're annoying people? <laughs> well, it's disappearing that doesn't annoy people. I think. Um, it's repeating the same tired formulas as if just repeating those formulas is somehow going to make people's eyes open up. Um, that's the error. I, I, we all have to remember that witness is a rhetorical event. And, and we may not like to think about it that way, but that's what it is. It's one person communicating to another person. And so I have no secret recipe to give that would illuminate all of us or teach us how to do it. In fact, I think quite the opposite. Anytime any of us tries to operate according to a program within the context of a human relationship, people can tell. And so I think we just have to learn how to become better friends. That's, that's my opinion. Uh, can I say one last thing about this? I, I really mean that last thing, friendship is one of God's great gifts to us. He is our friend, and he allows us to enter into friendships with other people. I take it that many of you understand this, is why you keep coming back to this conference. Um, but one of the things that we need to do, I think, in our ministries is to get that message out and to encourage people, men and women alike, that there's almost nothing worth their time more than investing in friendships. Michael and I were talking about this together um, earlier today. It's in our friendships very often that Jesus Christ ministers to us and reveals himself to us. So cultivate those. There are a lot of lonely people out there. Yeah. So um, certainly don't, I, I don't have a lot of answers, but um, one thing I was thinking that you mentioned is one time that people will be interested in your words, I think, is when, as you say, with friendships when they ask you to speak. Mm. And I think that's when people are ready to listen. So perhaps that action, that living into the glorification, all that is an example. And then when we're asked, 
then we can provide them with our answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. And let me also, that's a really good point. Interpersonally in the context of, of a friendship or a relationship, uh, let me also just say in response to your question and also in response to what you've just said, um, I don't know how anyone witnesses without a church. There's only so much that we can do individually within friendships or in relationships that can communicate what the Christian message is to people. The, the best form of witness is to bring people, I think, to church. Um, because a community can do something that an individual can't do. And so I think that is part of the reason that as we watch our churches decline in terms of their health, um, it's, it's not simply a matter of learning new techniques of knowing how to, to go witness. Um, we need communities that are healthy enough to, to bring people to that would be persuasive in helping them perceive who Jesus is, who God is, what his love is. Yeah. Uh, you, you used a uh, red letter word in your lecture called narcissism. My question is, we're faced with that on the political realm. And how do we, uh, how do we address that when we face it on a, on a local level or in a relational scene? Because it's so destructive. I don't know. I mean, what I read about it is that narcissists are some of the folks who counselors hate to see walk in their doors most because there is very little evidence that there's much that counseling, at least, can do to help narcissists out of their narcissism. So you've asked me a very hard question. For, it's like, define God and give three examples. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that question. Pay attention to it. Recognize what's going on. The saddest part is that many people who are abused by narcissists don't see what's happening. Okay. This is a little weird, but if you know me, that explains everything. I like weird. Um, so in our small group, we've been talking about all of this really wonderful stuff that you and Haley have been giving us. But what it's brought up for us is, um, how do you evangelize a message that is, here's the deal. You're supposed to disappear into Christ and, uh, and be prepared to suffer and, um, and, and to, to do that with, well, maybe not joy, but at least flair. That's not the right word, but anyway. <laughs> so um, in America, we evangelize by saying, this is, come to Jesus, he will solve all of your sorrows, he will give you the, he, he's Santa Claus with like a beard. Uh, no, the, both have beards. But anyway, uh, but I mean, we, we sell Jesus, we market Jesus as this is the avenue to happiness. And if, we, if, if, what, if what we're really doing is surrendering all of who we are, all of our hopes and dreams and aspirations uh, to the cross, dying to self, disappearing to self, that we might better 
be have Christ live within us and love the world and the people in it, how do we uh, how do we market that as an appealing life? And I, I'm sure you have the answer to that. I'm confident. How's that marketing going for us? Um, I've become convinced over the years, uh, especially over the last four or five years, as I've spoken with Whitworth folks who have left the faith, um, many of them leave not because they become flaming atheists or because of other reasons. Uh, they leave because they feel like they were lied to about what to expect in the Christian life. And I think that if witness is going to be truthful, we cannot mislead people by giving the impression that following Jesus is something altogether different than it actually is. Um, it's just basic to use the language that you're using, truth and advertising. Um, yes, cultures, to use a word we were using earlier today, uh, deform people. Consumer cultures deform people. And there's an incentive to only embrace those things that are convenient or comfortable or that add value to your life. Um, so this is a major problem, but I think that it's not a problem best addressed by trying to be that, to work within that kind of mindset. I, I think it's a problem better addressed by um, doing the best that we can to create smaller Christian communities that are actually authentic. That's, how, that's what I think the, the, the best approach or response to this would be. And it's also a willingness and a capacity not to be duped by numbers. Kierkegaard has this extraordinary parable where a, a guy buys beer for five cents and sells it for three cents. And he sells hundreds of thousands of these. And someone uh, comes and asks him, well, how on earth can you make this work financially? And he's like, look at all these bottles of beer that people are drinking. <laughs> and Kierkegaard's point just is, uh, we can be bewitched by numbers. There's a difference, Bart teaches us, between in what he calls intensive growth in the community and extensive growth. Of course, we want extensive growth, but not at the sacrifice of intensive growth. Adam, uh, uh, Adam thank you for this uh, week. It's been great with you and Haley. Uh, and I love Carl Barton, as you know, from my first introduction of myself to you. And uh, the thing that strikes me um, about Bart is like uh, his characteristics of, uh, of just producing this great work, but out of his own ministry too. Um, uh, so it wasn't just armchair theology, but, um, but I wanted to ask you if maybe joy is such an important thing to me. And, um, and Carl Bart, as I understand it, he woke up every morning to Mozart playing, and he loved the joy in Mozart's music. And um, he found joy, uh, and maybe you could tell us uh, other places, I don't, I don't know how it came out in his life, 
But I know I, I retired a year ago at, at 66, and I've always found joy in my ministry, but I did not, I was losing joy, and I felt like something's wrong. And so I made a path. I didn't have to retire, but I chose. And now I'm waiting to, to know my next place. But I think joy is a really important blessing. We can't make it happen or generate it, but maybe we can cultivate it. And maybe that's what Karl Barth did. Uh, I don't know. Joy is a symptom of, of God's presence and, and grace to us, I think, even in the burden of ministry. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, he did love Mozart. Mozart's uh, portrait, if you go to Karl Barth's, you can still go to his study. Mozart's portrait on the wall is higher than Calvin's. Um, yet, I, I don't have a whole lot to add other than maybe one point that I would say that at least connects to his capacity for joy is that while he is, is more or as much as anyone else committed to the absolute objectivity of truth, like I've especially been saying in the first talk, but over and over, truth is a reality in Christ, he is also deeply conscious of his own relativity, of, of, his own, of the relativity of his perception of the truth. And if he didn't have that quality, I don't think he would be as joyful as he was. Um, I just think that there, it's too much of a burden for each one of us to feel as if we are called to possess and dispense the truth in a kind of uh, infallible way. Bart's way of approaching theology is, to use a current word, sustainable. Because he knows that we got some stuff right today, but we probably also got a lot of stuff wrong. And so we wake up tomorrow and we take a fresh look at the Gospels, Scripture, remembering what we learned yesterday, but not just repeating it over and over trying to move freshly into the text and into the gospel. And that dynamic in his thinking um, certainly uh, was indispensable for joy. Thanks, everybody.